Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organization defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There is more information on the website, womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 34,436 people from 160 countries and is supported by 400 86 organizations. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including 53 country contacts, engaged in defending women's rights. Please join us as a volunteer. And today we have a very special webinar because we are, we are going to have half of it in English and half of it in Spanish. One part of this webinar is going to be in Spanish and another part is going to be in English. We have Laura Lucona from Mexico that she's going to talk about her last book, then Zuleika from Puerto Rico, she's going to be commenting about the politics in Puerto Rico and in regards to the transgenderism politics in the country. We're going to have more Spanish representation in this uh, webinar. The Movimiento Feminista Madrid is going to be here also uh, talking about the actions that they're going to perform. And then at the end, we're going to have uh, Roxy uh, Roots, that um, she's a survivor from the prostitution and the BDCM world. We are going to start now our webinar. We have Laura Lucona from Mexico and Silvia Carrasco. We are going to present Laura, which is the writer of this book. She's the contact of Mexico for the WDI. And Silvia Carrasco is anthropology. She's the president of um, the Catalonia Spanish. Um, and also, she's member of DOMSECO, and she's a professor in the Barcelona University. Thank you, Amparo. Thank you to the Women's Declaration. Hello, Laura. How are you doing? It's an honor. And it's a pleasure to be here in this on this week because this means a lot that we have this webinar 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 on this week because in the Spanish Congress this week the trans sexual uh, the transgenderism law has been approved. We are going to discuss the book written by uh, Laura Leucona because all of these laws have been approved in Spain um, while the Spanish feminists have been accused of um, liars and aggressive trying, while trying to stop this from happening. This is only a battle. We are going to win the war, this I'm sure of. And of course, all of these um, thoughts that we have at the moment, we are going to get out a lot of 
ideas, how to battle this, and also this is why it's so important to talk about the book that Laura wrote. This position has been very fundamented. We have built a very strong movement in the UK and in Spain. We are all in sisterhood fighting this uh, patriarchal advance. And Laura made a great favor to all of us because this book is just amazing. Can you see the cover? This book has also its story, its history, because uh, this is going to be translated also. But let me celebrate the uh, efforts that Laura put in Spanish and written this when writing this book. It's not her first book, but of course this book is very important and very needed at the moment. She's a, a feminist philosopher, and this book can be taken as an encyclop encyclopedia because it's everything there, all the information that feminists need. Why is this ideology um, so dangerous about uh, neo-genderism? Neo and why they are so aggressive against feminists and why they are so violent against feminists. And this book is actually great because she puts everything into order, very clear, and it's very, very important to have all of these ideas there. And when we have our ideas uh, clear, it is better for us to fight this back. I might not be fully agreeing with every part of this book, but of course, this is very important for us to have this book because of all the information she uh, has in the, on this book. So please buy this book, read it, make your ideas, and colleagues that are in the what happens in between the uh, writers and the philosophers in the Spanish scene is that we are all reading everybody. So this is very important because this makes all of our ideas dialogue with each other between the ideas from Hispanic and Hispanic and Spanish ideas with the Anglo-Saxon ideas. And it is a great opportunity that this book is going to be translated into English because these ideas will be taken also into the debate. I'm sorry that I'm taking so much, so long to start, but I really think this is a wonderful opportunity to present this book. This is very important to have in the feminist fight. Thank you, Laura, for choosing me to be the presenter of this book. We're not going to um, take more time to present each other because I think the most important thing will be to talk about ideas. I will start with this question. Why, why did you have this need to write this book? in this way with all of these ideas you put in the book and if how how did you got into the production of this book because it's a clear point 
how you describe our um, how, how we are completely abused and prevented from speaking okay great <laughs> i think there was something okay it's an honor that you are the presenter from the beginning i always thought of you and how does the need come up it's because for me it's very important to some order into all of these ideas and after all so many art articles that i wrote and tweets i wanted to sit and kind of put everything together and i never got the time for this but an editor that i know since very long and whom i collaborated with before because i'm also editor editor and tra translator we got along very well, and he is a mathematician, but, but we share some, um, for example, some like the use of the language, and he was, he is very attentive about what is happening in the world, and he was thinking um, to translate the, the Ellen Joyce book, and I was very happy about yes, yes, please translate us and you can take me as a translator, this would be great. And then he said, wait, 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 maybe I order, I, I tell you to make a book. And he was at the beginning, um, he was the director of uh, Signal 21, like 21 century editorial. And this is how we kind of got together to publish the book from Guadalajara. I really had very little time to write this book, but of course I, just, I understood the situation and I, I, I took this opportunity. And there are some things that I would like to say because what happened is has a magnitude. I'm a freelancer and to make sure that I could present my book in the book ferry in Guadalajara, I had to stop working. So I rejected translation, something that you never do as a freelancer, but because you never know what's going to happen later. But of course, everything was ready, the book was ready, and the book was a little bit longer than what we thought, but of course, it was important to really tell everything about what is happening. And the idea, it was that we had an idea for the general public to understand what is happening, but I also wanted to write this book for the feminists, and I also didn't want to tell these feminists all that we know already. So I tried to combine these two things. The thing is like when the program came and that my book was published, the trans activists started uh, tagging everyone, the editorial, they started thread, the, this is when the thread started against the book and the presentation of the book, they even threatened to burn the, the editorial. We, we really didn't want this presentation to be uh, closed and shut, but of course we, didn't want to be responsible about what was happening and the backlash that we were getting. The editorial was, um, and the ferry were uh, saying that they, didn't, they were not going to accept the violence, 
but there was very scandalous and then we decided not to present to present it so just to make sure that this doesn't escalate because the threats were were very uh, violent and then we changed the plans but the book was going to publish until the chief of the editorial that he knew before that um, the topic was problematic and controversial and on the book there are all kinds of information about this topic and also uh, what to do when this kind of backlash happens we i wrote about this but but uh, the chief was uh, very terrified about it and i have to say that unfortunately the book is not uh, on the siglo 21 editorial not because of these threats but because of something else and then they decided that they would leave this uh, conflict into into the new uh, chief but in the middle of his scandal and between the attacks and the harassment my best answer was the book i couldn't wait uh, for the book to be published so i said no okay i will publish it myself so the edition before the selling the book was super good i got super good uh, feedback from the women the book was very good so the book has been reached and the feminists and the women all across the country in mexico and then it also was sold in spain and different countries that speak spanish i do not support what uh, they decided in siglo 21 editorial but this brought the opportunity for me to be interested to be in contact directly with the women that are interested on buying my book and this was great because they contacted me directly. They, I told her all the story. They, they paid the book before the book even existed. So there was a lot of changes with me, and and not actually women were ready to pay for all kinds of uh, shipping costs that is really expensive. So to me, this was a great energy and. Just being in contact with them, it was something great. And I was able to see that friends read the book together. They gathered together just to discuss the book. And this is kind of a little bit about the story of the, of the book. Well, this is great. The support you got, it is also very telling that um, we should not listen to this attacks and to these threats. So I will make like a short review about this book. We're going to discuss some of the ideas. It's a book that has five chapters. It is written from the irony, but also from the very exhaustive, very, very deep um, investigations and collection of data. And of course, they want to use gender 
um, definitions to kind of uh, lie to the public. So we can say that everything that is uh, compacted in the gender ideology politics. One of the one of the chapters is called one three theories about the um, the different uh, political oppositions to the transgenderism. One from the radical perspective, another one from the from the medicine, and then from the terminology and politics. So these three models that we are, uh, these three models that analyzes the transgenderism is very interesting because these different um, positions that help us to put this into a into a, a view that tells us that from all of these different uh, angles, this is against feminism. The three different topics come to the same conclusion. I think it's a great, I think it's a great way to explain what is happening to us and how this political project affects women. Now I'm going to talk to the next chapter. So the chapters are written from the irony, but also we can see what uh, Laura also mentioned, that this expression about that says the tyrannic infantilism to make the other ones to be like I want. So they want to use the language to accomplish it. The fourth chapter that this is very getting closer to my investigation about uh, created and fake trans childhood or child children. So they want to uh, they want to erase women and they use this kind of line from Michelle Moore to to carry on with this rhetoric about the transgenderism in uh, children that affects the education. And it has the last chapter that is called uh, collateral damages and what happens with the freedom of expression, the women, the families, how all of this theory and this political movement is affecting the society, not only in, in the Anglo-Saxon countries, but also everywhere in the world. It goes very much beyond everywhere to make a, a to make really like an analysis on what is happening. Your book proposes everybody to think about the dangers of this ideology because through your analysis you really look forward to um, take the veil away from what they are doing by pushing these politics. 
I am a social uh, scientific, but I am interested to know how, how do you um, define this kind of um, what we are told to be like the real trans. Let's see what they say to families to, to kind of imply that uh, the child at some point will come up saying that it's trans. And now nobody in the society is explaining why this is happening. We are moving between the politics and the psychologist and psychic worlds. This idea of gender is very important and you go back to this um, to this what it means to to talk about gender in the last chapter which is very important every time in the book you always remember everybody the analysis of Mikel Mise who is a who is a, a woman that uh, considers herself a child, a, a boy, a young boy. And she wrote the book, The Conqueror of the Wrong Body. And you use this book to be compared to Janice Raymond's book. And you make analysis on these two perspectives. But I am not so sure that this reflection, and let me be a little bit provocative so you can um, answer to me back. I don't think that you using this um, might not be so coherent. Can you tell us why you do it? Well, to resume the word gender, we should stop using this because I have seen feminists that push to keep the gender because some feminists think that the gender word was stolen by transgenderism but uh, this is actually I don't agree with this I think that gender is actually creating more confusion than clarity so we should stop using this word I don't think I'm the only one uh, thinking this way. It's very, this, um, this posture is also very famous, also used by uh, Sheila Jeffries gender, in the book Gender Hurts. We have to abolish the gender. And also, this also means stop using the word. Well, um, the Miquel Mises uh, idea is not because I defend her posture, but to read her, the conqueror of the wrong body, she was a little bit very, very close to realize and to kind of peak. But she did, she doesn't, because she talks about her childhood and that she refers to being a masculine child, and she and she she says in the book that she needed to make the translate the transition, so she kind of analyzes her um, reality, and she also complains very much about the 
the body thieves. And this I see very similar to what Janice Raymond wrote in the Transsexual Empire. And how come that no one told this girl that she can live in her body being herself? But this is what the feminists are saying. You don't really need to make any transition. You just have to be yourself. No one has to steal your body. The fact that you're not uh, feminine or the fact that you're not doing what women are expected to do, is, this doesn't mean that you stop being a little girl. If very young um, children would, especially girls, would listen to the um, feminist theory that they can be themselves, we could, we could really uh, avoid all of these dangers of the trans activism. And this is why it is so dangerous for trans activists to have our theory reaching the young women and the young girls. This is why for me it was so important to compare these two books from this angle. It's like two only two pages, but everything is uh, compressed there. But for me, it was very interesting to contrast these two books and these ideas because trans transgenderism wants to um, end our. Um, if if they really want to um, abolish. The, the gender stereotypes, as they say, they wouldn't have problems with the feminists and our theory. They really want to push for gender roles, like the men are very masculine and then the women are very feminine, but then the critic of uh, this young girl because these trans children is a political instrument to advance the gender identity agenda of the adults but then they use her they they, they use her to show look how beautiful this little girl is but no one makes a proper critic against the the medical complex and politics. And I still find what this uh, trans man uh, wrote in this book. There are very many things that are compared to what Janice Raymond wrote in her book and the radical feminist because she questions the gender roles. The only question she didn't make is, why do you need this? You already got to the conclusion not to follow the gender roles, but then still you believe in the transgenderist idea that you have to follow this sexist, sexist um, gender roles. I have, of course, a lot of differences with this uh, writer. But if the trans activists were closer to her kind of analysis about gender roles, it would be 
better because this would paint the reality how how uh, dangerous the transgenderism how much it can hurt the young people. well the problem is that there is no debate also with mechanism it's very hard to have a debate the debate is always taken out of the table one of the things that i find very key to remark because you are a professional translator you're a writer so your so the language is your medium so in the third chapter you face the main weapon that transgenderism keeps constructing all of this belief system to push for the political agenda so basically they construct all of these um, parallel definition parallel world of definitions and they stay in this closed system where they um, keep surrounding and, and keeping in this closed linguistic uh, but Laura really uh, challenges this and you in the book you point out how important it is to um, keep the language clean because if we take a little bit of the language they propose for us the whole thing um, is over for us this is why we should not use anything from the language they propose to use yes exactly the first thing was the pro, uh, pronoun like um, you start accepting that they have uh, pronouns and then you go from uh, having pronouns to having uh, mastectomies and stuff like this and then the whole agenda already taking over your language it is very common that we hear that uh, what is it what is it so why is it so hard for you to speak to a man in feminine and this is very important for us not to do why should i change my uh, way of speaking about men in front of him because the strongest argument against the pronouns that the article presents on one side you are yourself pushing yourself to speak about a man with feminine words so you are hypnotizing yourself pushing yourself to speak as if this man was a woman and then uh, you correct yourself and then you come back and then you forget that he's a man and then you come back it's a, a lot of work for you but also if you show that you do this in front of young girls it's like you are telling these young girls to also do the same so then you are telling these little girls that if they see a man they should 
call him a woman. And the little defenses that these young girls could have to identify uh, predators, you are denying this to them. So this is a very important argument to think about the younger uh, girls to confront the, the abusers. I think I still would write more about this. I think uh, I left some out in the book. But it, this is also the, the... I understand the women that they want to be nice to everybody, but then they are attempting against themselves and against the thought, the way of thinking of for themselves. This is This actually goes against their own intelligence everything under the idea of being nice. This kind of uh, way of hurting, this is a way of hurting these young girls when you tell uh, men that yes, we are going to accept their need to be named as women. For example, what happens in Afghanistan, it's very important to re to recover these kind of things that happen in Afghanistan. Ah, women, if you don't do this, if you don't cover your face, you're provoking men, so please don't do this, don't challenge this. So I see this transgenderism idea of um, pushing everybody to change the language a little bit like this, that it starts that I will not I will, that starts like this, but I will really not push myself to accept this. But in many languages, you also uh, speak of the language like a repression, like a, like, like a secta, like they use the language to create a secta and to stop women from challenging this. And you select a couple of phrases where even the women following this agenda, they also don't follow fully this kind of um, language. That there is something at some point that they, they you can see that they don't believe at the end. It's always a point where they kind of forget and that, and then you can see that they could be seen as false allies. And then, of course, they, they, they feel like they are uh, not allies enough. Yes, yes, and it's also linked to the, the freedom of expression, the, exp the, the capacity of women to express themselves is very hurtful for the transgenderism and transgenderists that support the idea. But this is the typical idea that we are facing every time. Like, for example, the people in Guadalajara, when I try to publish my book, they accept that um, they accept that we are hateful and they don't question if we are hateful or not. They just accept this because the, um, they claim that the freedom of expression cannot 
have or include hate uh, hate speeches, for example. But of course, they this is why they don't question what we say. So they just put everything together as a hate speech and then they don't question what we say. It has to be possible to discuss what is a hateful speech. And there in the book, I there's a table on the book where I put some phrases and facts there. In which page is it? Okay. So there, in a democratic society, you should be able to have an organization where the participants can dia dialogue whether the new, the next phrases could be uh, paid or not. So, for example, calling uh, a masculine uh, a man that says that is um, a woman. If if sex if sex is so problematic, how is it in Afghanistan? No, who cannot send to school? So how is it when these uh, men identifying as women sent to women um, take my uh, dick? How, how can how can we explain all of these phrases? How can we really sure that uh, it's hateful to say that uh, someone was born in the wrong body? Please um, remember this book. This is great. You can buy it. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Silvia. So. Spinifex will publish the book in English in September with the English title. So Soleka Valentin, she was born in Puerto Rico, but now she lives in Florida. She's a volunteer um, for the Women's Declaration, like Laura, that is our representative in Mexico. She works for the declaration in the United States where she lives, but also she will show us what is happening with um, the transgenderism in Puerto Rico. She learned about radical feminism in her study, and now she's about to finish her career about sexual studies and she knows the threat that transgenderism also has for sexual education. Thank you and welcome. Hello to everybody. My name is Suleika Arroyo. I want to say thank you to Women International for connecting so many women across the world for letting us be here to speak in a culture of cancellation. Thank you to the very brave women that you show your faces and you let everybody know your name. I'm not the first Puerto Rican that is here, but one year ago, um, 
one uh, feminist that came here from Puerto Rico. She had to cancel her presentation to be published because of the threats to Puerto Rico. Women are harassed and threatened. They have no support. They are called transphobic. So the feeling of women in Puerto Rico is that there is no interest in protecting the women that are able to speak up. Puerto Rico is a colony not incorporated to the US in the Caribe. That is, we are less than um, we are less than four million. The Puerto Rican uh, policy is a democratic public republic. The Puerto Rico is divided into three uh, branches, executive, legislative, and judicial, and established by the Constitution of Puerto Rico. The executive branch is headed by the government, who is advised by a cabinet of secretaries that are independent of the legislature. The government appoints with the advice and consent of the Senate and the members of the cabinet, which is made up of the secretary of the departments due to Puerto Rico status as an incorporated territory of the United States, its residents cannot vote in the nation's presidential elections. Politics in Puerto Rico revolves around a multi-party political system dominated by three primary political parties. Although in recent years, new parties have been listed. According to the conservative sources, the introduction of the gender perspective was under the governorship of the first governor, Sila Calderón. He was one of the installed, who installed the office of the women's ombudsman, introducing a gender perspective to combat the domestic violence. It is the government office dedicated to impacting public policies and programs aimed at ensuring the rights of women. Domestic violence is a type of gender violence that occurs with people who are or were a couple and between whom there was a consensual relationship. In Puerto Rico, justice for victims of gender violence, mostly women, goes unnoticed. Hence, the need to implement an educational curriculum with a gender perspective. In Puerto Rico, they have always talked about gender perspective differentiating themselves from gender ideology with great impetus by professionals in the area of social sciences. They define the gender perspective as an analysis methodology which seeks to eliminate the stereotypes imposed by society, opening doors and opportunities, not only for women, but also for men. This perspective, according to social professionals, question, questions the stereotypes with which we are educated and opens the possibility of building new contents of socialization and relationship between human beings. The United Nations also uses the gender perspective to denote the oppression of women. I believe that in the translation of information, the message is often lost 
or change entirely. During my academic uh, preparation as a sex educator, we differentiate between perspective and ideology using the definition of both concepts as antonyms. No, antonym, antonyms. The gender perspective is defended because according to the United Nations and the World Health Organization, it's so to comply with the human and universal rights of sexuality based on dialogue, truth, respect for differences, develop, development of values and positive attitudes. However, what has happened in Puerto Rico is a promotion of a gender ideology. The intent was to take a gender critical perspective, meaning that the professional law and policies must take into consideration that our culture perpetuates gender stereotypes that oppress women in society. Gender perspective and gender ideology are the same compound word. However, perspective and ideology by themselves are antonyms. Gender ideologies, gender ideology for its part represents the vision of the fundamental ideas of queer theory developed by Judith Butler. This ideology has captured the intention to implement a critical gender perspective. The axioms of gender ideology include believing in the existence of a gender identity, believing that there are people who are born in the wrong body and that they should be treated. To assimilate their non-conformity and gender dysphoria, believing that gender stereotypes are what make a woman or a man and deny differences and operations based on sex. In contrast, a critical gender perspective includes the acceptance, respect, and dignity of homosexual and non-conforming people with gender stereotypes, the acceptance and education of the body, and the right to attention, attraction based on sex, not gender. When we talk about gender, we refer to the ideas, behaviors, expectations that a society or culture has about men and women. Many of these ideas are considered gender stereotypes and are not determined by nature, but are acquired through social cultural learning. The Yoga Karti principles determine that gender identity refers to the internal and individual experience of gender as a as each person deeply feels it, which may or may not correspond to the sex assigned at birth, including the personal experience of the body, which could entail the modification of appearance or bodily functions through medical, surg surgical, or other procedures, as long as it's freely chosen. And other expressions of gender, including dress, speech, and mannerism. Yogi Akarta principles, principles, uh, on the application of international human rights law in relation to sexual orientation and gender identity, March 2007. The term sex is used exclusively for biological distinction. It is not assigned at birth. Sex is observed and unchanging. There are people who have decided to identify with the stereotyped ideas of what a man and a woman should be in the culture.
neither gender nor gender identity are protected categories in the Constitution of Puerto Rico. Article 2 of the Bill of Rights of the Constitution of Puerto Rico Section 1 establishes non-discrimination based on race, color, sex, birth, origin, or social condition, or political or religion ideas. Section 3 establishes that no law relating to the establishment of any religion shall be passed, nor shall the free exercise of religion worship be prohibited. There will be complete separation of church and state. Section 4 establishes that no law shall be passed that restricts freedom of speech or of the press or the right um, of people to assemble in peaceful assembly and to ask the government to um, redress grievances. The laws of Puerto Rico have been adjusted to incorporate gender identity. In Puerto Rico, it is allowed to change your gender in driver's, in driver's uh, licenses and birth certificates, thanks to Executive Order 2015-029, sent by Governor Alejandro Garcia Padilla. This allows uh, people to identify themselves within categories they do not belong under because identification documents denote a person's sex, not their gender. The Commonwealth of Puerto Rico has failed to recognize that the demographic information provided on identification documents denote the sex of individuals, not their gender identity. This allows people to identify as the other sex it allows men to identify themselves within a category that requires spaces, attention, and particular needs. When it is recognized that the oppression of women is due to reason of sex. Law 69 of 1985 was also adjusted, which guarantees equal employment rights by prohibiting discriminatory actions based on sex. It establishes that it is illegal for an employer entity to suspend or refuse to employ, dismiss, or discriminate with respect to employment for reasons of sex or any other condition among human beings. Then they amended the law to say gender in 1999 with law number 212. Law 22 2013 is the first legislation against employment discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity in Puerto Rico. Establishes public policy against discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity in employment. It uses the reaffirmation of the dignity of the human being and that all the people are equal before the law as a constitutional premise. This law uh, provides definition for both concepts, establishing that sexual orientation and gender identity are broadly interpreted to offer greater protection. They define sexual orientation as attraction based on gender, not sex. Sexual orientation it is the capacity of each person to feel an emotional, effective, or sexual attraction for people of a gender different from theirs or of the same gender, or of more than one gender. Gender identity, how the person identifies, how they recognize themselves in terms of gender, 
that may or might not correspond to their biological sex or assigned at, or assigned at birth. Several laws of the Puerto Rican government are amended to conform to this public policy, including the anti-discrimination law number 100-1959 to include gender identity as a protected category when the constitution does not mention it. General Order 624 of the Puerto Rico Police is created. Protocol for the treatment of transgender and transsexual persons created by Order 624 of the Puerto Rico Police Department. Approved on December 10th, 2015, this general order establishes the obligation to treat, to treat transgender and transsexual people with respect for their dignity and rights. The purpose of this general order is to establish the public policy and operational and administrative procedures for the employees of the Puerto Rico Police in their interaction with transgender or transsexual persons in order to provide security, respect, and dignity to this community. The gender of the person will be advised through the legal name and what pronouns they prefer. They are allowed to use the bathroom of their choice according to their gender expression if the person fears for their safety. The person will also have the option to decide if they want to be searched by a male or a female police officer. So a policewoman will have to search a man who identifies as a woman if he requests it. It also forces the police to use inclusive language against their will obstructing the constitutional freedom of speech. Law number 9-2020 complies all the rights of Puerto Rican woman workers for reasons of sex in private and public industries. Among the rights granted under the law, they are uh, guaranteed that measures are developed and implemented to prevent them from being discriminated against in their place of employment, have a work environment free of hostile, offensive, or intimidating behavior related to any cause of discrimination. Do not tolerate verbal, physical, or electronic conduct uh, that explicitly or implicitly makes unwanted approaches. That the employer keep the workplace free of sexual harassment and intimidation. All of us here know the consequences of raising our voices in favor of our basic rights. New privileges granted under the protection of sentiment expose women to hostile or vulnerable situations. Lastly, Puerto Rico wants to implement egalitarian education because they understand that education is the tool for the change. However, the curriculum has been criticized because it uh, proposes an education with a gender perspective or gender ideology. Our vocabulary and perspective on healthy sexuality is taking a negative turn. 
a healthy gender identity is considered to be cisgender, meaning that you identify with the ideas of gender assigned to men and women in society, many based on sexist ideas. To support all of this, you have to believe that there is a gender identity. In an intimate feeling of oneself as a man, a woman, a mixture of both or neither, and that we are born in the wrong bodies. How is it that by validating feelings, we protect women? If women want to educate against the imposed gender, why uh, the need of amend uh, a democratic labor law with unconstitutional elements? In addition, there are already two anti-discrimination laws in employment. Why protect an ideological concept like gender identity in the law? Are the citizens of Puerto Rico aware of these changes? Gender identity is the idea or feeling of a person in reference to their sex and gender stereotypes imposed by culture. The more you identify with a gender stereotype, the more you align yourself with feeling like that gender. And it is not a protected category under the constitution of Puerto Rico nor should it be compared with sexual orientation since both terms differ in their nature. Sexual orientation is attraction based on sex, not gender. With my message today, I want to invite mental and sexual health professionals in Puerto Rico to be critical of the queer narrative and its effects on our society and culture. I invite you to connect with feminist teachers, for co-education if you are truly interested in developing a feminist co-educational curriculum, like the one proposed with the law 62-2017. I so now we are having uh, El Movimiento Feminista de Madrid, the feminist movement from Madrid, which is a group fo uh, focused on women's rights and they organize and are dedicated to political work and actions in, in Madrid. So welcome and over to you. Thank you. So hi, um, I'm Anna and from Radfem Berlin, we are supporting and working um, together to be there in Spain the next 8th of March. Um, we really recommend everybody to join the Movimiento Feminista Madrid because they have been doing uh, great actions uh, before. Uh, for example, they uh, worked together to make uh, different kinds of flyers and um, special banners for this action. So we are very happy to be supporting the Movimiento Feminista Madrid, uh, and we invite all our international friends to join them. Thank you so much to Women's Declaration International for having us today. We are really delighted to be here. I'm speaking as a spokeswoman for the feminist movement of Madrid. My name is Laura Rivas, and uh, we are an independent regional group that is not affiliated in any way to any political party or any trade union. We work auton autonomously, although we do collaborate with other organizations in Spain on different initiatives. Uh, we are fighting to take back Women's Day, essentially, Women's Day and other uh, women-centered 
um, events throughout the year, but especially the Women's Day March has been our main fight for the past years because it was co-opted as it has been everywhere around the world. It was co-opted by trans activism and so-called liberal feminism. I'd like to say before I begin that this presentation was actually made by my fellow feminist Ana de Blas from the Feminist Movement of Madrid and I edited and translated it and uh, adapted it a bit for today. Um, in the presentation, in the first picture, you are seeing a banner we made a few years ago. Uh, we made it with um, these cards that pimps use in Spain to promote uh, prostitution of women as publicity. They leave these cards everywhere because prostitution in Spain is technically decriminalized. It's not officially legal, so you can't, for example, extract taxes from it, but it's not illegal. So women are not prosecuted. And even though pimping is illegal, um, owning a brothel is not illegal. So it's kind of a gray area, but really it's it's tolerated and it has a very big presence here in Spain because we are a tourist destination, essentially. So the our banner says abolition of prostitution. So in Spanish speaking feminists use the term abolitionism a lot when speaking about ending prostitution and the sex trade, ending pornography, ending the um, um, reproductive exploitation of women, and abolishing gender, right? So ending gender. So we call ourselves abolitionists generally. We have nothing to do with the abolitionist movement of prisons in the US. It's a completely different thing, just to be clear beforehand. So uh, I'm going to try to give a bit of context uh, about what's happened in Spain in the past years, beginning in 2014, let's say. For us, 2014 was a real um, catalyst mo moment because at the time we had a very conservative um, Catholic uh, justice minister who wanted to basically remove <laughs> abortion rights. Uh, we had um, achieved a new law in 2010 that enabled women to abort uh, have an abortion legally up until the 14th week and the 22nd when there is a risk to the mother. And um, the, the conservative government wanted to get rid of it. So there was this explosion of uh, feminist mobilization that year that nobody was expecting. Like not the conservatives, not the feminists themselves. It was incredible. And it was it was a movement organized by a small group of women uh, of um, traditional historical feminists uh, in Asturias in the north of Spain who organized this thing called the Freedom Train. They came down by train from Asturias in the north to Madrid and then a demo was waiting for them in Madrid and we marched together. And for many young feminists at the time, it was like a wake up call. For I was 24 and many of us there realized something was happening that we didn't know about before and for us it was an opportunity because thousands and thousands of women were at that demo and that was really shocking nobody was expecting such a big thing you have a meeting in the picture uh, on top and the demo a small picture of the demo and the picture underneath the flags are the asturias regional flag they have nothing to do with anything religious <laughs> it's just the regional flag because spain is really big on regionalism as you probably know just to make that clear. So 2014 was a, a real catalyst movement and we, uh, fe the feminist movement in Spain was obviously influenced and in contact with the global feminist movement and those years were big everywhere. 
there was the 2000, the year 2000 uh, Global Women's Strike Initiative that had been launched in many countries around the world under really general demands, let's say, about um, uh, maternity leave and so on in many countries. And that idea uh, remained alive uh, in many countries and um, was the precursor for the 2016 Polish and Argentinian uh, mobilizations. The Polish women uh, actually striked already on 2016, and it was a huge success. They rallied around abortion rights, even though a few years back they were they lost abortion rights due to their constitutional court. Unfortunately, I think it was 2021. It's a it's a dark time for feminism and for women's rights in general across the board, as we know nowadays. But at the time, they were successful. And uh, it was also a very big year in Argentina. The, the Argentinian um, feminist movement um, was became massive that year. Also around abortion rights and around um, uh, male violence, protesting against male violence uh, mainly. And then in 2017, it was the Washington March with the global women's strike. And that was a global success. It was a success in the US with uh, half a million women at, uh, at the White House and around maybe 3 million women worldwide, probably more, but it's difficult to tell. It was also the beginning of the controversy with trans activists about the pussy hats and the pussy hats and so on, about how it was transphobic for women to fight for their rights. I can't go into detail, but I'm showing the slide in case anyone wants to stop the video later and wants to look at them a little bit. Uh, you have the Polish uh, women uh, on the left and the Argentinian women up top. So uh, in Spain, obviously, everyone was attentive. Feminists were very attentive. Uh, in, in Europe, the feminist movement in different countries is always working together with women from other countries. So we were very attentive to what was happening in Poland. And we are always attentive at what's happening in Latin America, of course, in Spain. And uh, we usually work together with feminists, um, as you know, <laughs> from Latin America, of course. So 2017 was a very big year for um, feminist demonstrations in the, especially the Women's Day demonstration. And 2018 was the peak. It was absolutely incredible. Um, women striked, women striked all throughout the country. Women walked out of their, of their jobs. It wasn't just white colored women. Like I remember seeing shops, like big brand name shops, closing down in the middle of the day, in the middle of Madrid. I remember breaking down crying in 2018 because I couldn't believe what was happening. I could not believe the amount of women uh, mobilizing. In the demo in Madrid in 2018, there was one million people, which is unprecedented, completely unprecedented in, in Spain, for sure, and incredible for a, for a city the size of Madrid. And I mean, it, the mobilization was massive all throughout Spain in many other countries, in many other cities as well. So obviously um, this was, this did not go unnoticed for the so-called left-wing parties, right? So in Spain, we, at that time, we had this new part, several parties in the end because they splintered, but the main one was Podemos. These new so-called left-wing parties that had come out of the Occupy movement, which in Spain was called Indignados, and they had effectively by then, by 2018 or so, 2019, they had effectively cannibalized the traditional left-wing parties, which in Spain was mainly Izquierda Unida, but there were also others. 
And they were very attentive at how strong the feminist movement was. And they, they knew they had to use it to their advantage <laughs> and they decided to do so. So, femini so feminism was very horizontal. The, organi the organizing assemblies and meeting groups were very, let's say, anarchistic, you know, very egalitarian and so on, non-hierarchical. So they were very easy to co-opt and they were co-opted. There was this strategy of entryism uh, from the pseudo left that was carried out. And in exchange, the Podemos party, mainly Podemos, gave their apparatus uh, as a means of support for the mobilizations. So at the time, many feminists believed they were well-intentioned. Many voted for them. I voted for them in 2019 and came to regret it very, very strongly because I peaked trans very soon after. But... And ba back then uh, in 2018, Podemos had already proposed a self-ID law, which they barely changed a few things. I really liked uh, Tuleika's presentation because it's shocking how similar the legislation all around the world is, right? I mean, you can see it's a template <laughs> that they've purposely exported everywhere. Like the definitions are the same, it's incredible. So Podemos already had that text, which is always the same text in 2018, and very few women were attentive about it back then, but there were a lot of fractures already around the prostitution debate. So in the main areas that had been co-opted, uh, prostitution was taboo, pornography was taboo, you could not be critical of it, there was a lot of, um, we call them regulationists. We don't call them decrim because in Spain it makes no sense because prostitution is legal in Spain. So it's, it, we call them regulationists and uh, the women in favor of Nordic model are abolitionists. So a lot of women in the pseudo left-wing parties are women and men, of course, are pro-regulation. So pro-pimp and punters' rights, right? The, the right to sexually exploit women and to, uh, trade with women and it was a taboo you could not broach the subject we tried we went to the to the meetings we went to the assemblies for several years abolitionists tried to broach the subject this is a women's rights issue we need to address it prostitution is a huge problem in spain because as i said we are a tourist destination and especially in catalonia barcelona barcelona is porn central of europe it's like the porn industry is really, really strong and, and the pimp lobby is very, very strong in Barcelona. And uh, it, was, it was impossible. It was impossible. We were boycotted at every turn. We were, it was impossible. So by, by the end of 2018, feminists, uh, actual feminists decided to organize. And in Madrid, uh, there was an there was a meeting called the the Abolitionist uh, Assembly, Asamblea Abolicionista de Madrid, which eventually became an organization, and then afterwards would give uh, rise to several uh, radical feminist groups in Madrid. And um, and um, this um, was a meeting place for ra younger, let's say, I know it's a stereotype, but let's say younger radical feminist st stereotypes. I can't see you. Uh, younger radical feminist stereotypes and um, sorry, I was distracted. Radical feminist um, women and older, more traditional feminists uh, who had been traditionally involved in um, the Women's Day marches and so on and organizing that had been sidelined when this political co-opting of pseudo-liberal feminism happened. 
So we began organizing in our own groups at the end of 2018. And we kept trying to participate in the official channels for the official Women's Day marches. And it was impossible. And we were boycotted at every turn. And in 2020, we decided, okay, we can't participate in this anymore because what had been happening up until then was we were relegated to the back of the march. Our demands were impossible to put in the official manifesto. We had no access to the press. So, so in 2020, the Women's Day LibFem, the new official organizers, which were not the official organizers, but the co-opters, uh, decided to get rid of the women's strike and invent this thing that they called the women's revolt. And they organized different little events around different cities in Spain. And this is one example that you have here of a trans-identified male saying in front of a little girl uh, how prostitution is a revolt and how prostitution is empowering to women. I can't play the video, but it's it's on Facebook. If you look for it, for Revuelta Puteril, if there's a way to share links, I'll share the link later, maybe in the comments or and so on. And um, this is just one example of trans activism completely co-opting. Of course, males were taking, trans identified males were taking place, uh, were participating in these meetings and so on. So it was, <laughs> it was impossible to have women only meetings. And we abolitionists who organized alternative meetings were of course outed as transphobes on Twitter and so on. Um, so in 2020, on Women's Day, we decided to bypass in Madrid, to bypass the official march and go to the front and get to the end of the march before anyone else to avoid clashes, but to try and get a picture for the press before the rest of the march arrived. And the organizers decided we were a terrible, transphobic and horrifying threat. And they came after us and before the march arrived, there was no march it was arriving it was behind us and they came and decided to push us to shove us to um, kick us in the i i got um hit with my own megaphone in the mouth i got uh kicked in the stomach with an elbow i gave a report to the police that evening and other other fellow feminists also did uh but it was useless because of course we didn't know who these women were and it was mostly women doing the dirty job for the men and they pushed it and they shoved us and they broke our banners with a knife and they threw our banners to the ground. And that graffiti says, um, no abolitionist will keep her head. We are coming for you. That appeared on Women's Day 2020 in our main university in Madrid, Complutense de Madrid. The violence we were experiencing at the time was at an all time high. I think it was it was the worst time 2020. And of course, the media was reporting nothing, of course. If they ever spoke about it, it was to talk, to lie about us, no, not to, not to tell the truth, right? So um, that's uh, Juventudes Feministas, one of the radical feminist groups uh, being kicked out by the organizers and the women affiliated with the organizers. In Barcelona, there was this man at the demonstration saying, I will break a turf. And he put it on Twitter and saying, we're going to kill the fucking turfs. Like this is the level of open violence. Like Barcelona is even worse than Madrid. I'll just pass the slides and if anyone's interested, they can stop and read them. Okay, so basically last year we organized our own demonstration and it was a huge success. We got 10,000 people for a completely independent, uh, non-affiliated organization. 
And I think the one that was backed by the government got like 30,000 people. So in comparison, it was incredible. And like the feeling was a huge success. And it was a demo that was in, in, their man, in our manifesto specifically abolitionist of prostitution, abolitionist of, of pornography, abolitionist of reproductive exploitation and abolitionist of gender specifically against the Self-ID Act that got passed the other day here in Spain. So this year we are again organizing our own demonstration, the demonstration for the 8th of March. We don't care what the other ones are, are doing. It will be at, uh, we'll start at 6.30 p.m. from Glorieta da Tocha. If anyone wants to come, please come. Uh, I think it's going to be a huge success because everyone in the feminist movement is very tired of Irene Montero. These are our, uh, this is our manifesto in eight points. I'll just pass the slides very quickly so people can stop and read them at their leisure if they want. And that's it for me. Thank you so much for having us. And now we are uh, going to hear from Roxy. Roxy is uh, here to tell us about her personal experience as a survivor, uh, because she is a trauma survivor of uh, CSA, child sexual abuse, who ended up in the sex trade after a lifelong struggle and of not fitting in and she got out by realizing the abusive patterns of relationships bdsm and kink the sex industry and the trans industry were all the same and she has experienced herself how pornography shapes and fields our culture this is a very tough subject but uh, we are here to support you and to hear from you and please welcome and over to you whenever you want thank you hi everyone and thank you for having me um I, I'm not sure how I'm, how I'm with time now because uh, we are already like over, but I'm trying to make it short and sweet. Um, I've got a couple of other interviews already out um, where I go into a little bit more deep detail, but this is like a little run over my, my story and what I've learned. So, sorry, what, Roxy, um, can I just say you have got 20 minutes. You okay, definitely okay, don't okay. make it shorter. And no I've, I've told okay. the attendees we want to, we really want to hear from you and even longer another time, but don't, don't. <laughs> Okay, cool. Um, so, okay. Um, yeah. So my story is um, very much kind of like related to um, what, well, it's basically like um, a showcase story for what is happening to a lot of women and young girls everywhere. Um, so let me just explain to you how I got into the sex industry. So um, it started with childhood sexual abuse. Um, in my family, which was actually really, you know, it was a really lovely, loving family, but my granddad was, wasn't. Um, so it kind of started off with this. Me and my two older sisters um, had to, uh, yeah, endure this. And uh, it ended with me uh, lifting the secret, actually um, lifting the secret. And then what followed was trauma from everything that unfolded afterwards so when i lifted this the the secrets the grooming the manipulation uh the result was moving away from my hometown you know being uh yeah totally removed from everything i knew and moving to uh, a different place um going into school and from the beginning i was just yeah i knew that i carried something because i was the I was the secret, uh, the the lifter of the of the secrets, and so 
this is what I was walking around with my whole life. I knew something was wrong with me. I knew something was off with me. And yet when I came into school and I tried to be friendly, make friends, whatever, I was obviously not getting on because we all know how children are. Um, in classrooms that are mixed, I'm not sure how it is in, uh, in single sex schools, but what I experienced was bullying, was bullying from the beginning. Um, and, you know, there comes the, there comes the kind of like time where, um, you know, you, you probably like give up on trying to fit in, you know, because I did, I tried to fit in, I tried to be, I tried to wear the same clothes or whatever. I tried to escape the bullying, it didn't work. Anyway, so this is the school time and this is the feeling that I kind of carried with me the whole time. Pre-pubescence was a time where, when I was just hitting the puberty, was a time when my parents divorced. This was probably also, this is all connected. Obviously, this is not a, it's not an easy story for um, any family to go through. So my mom actually left and up until that point, I was I was a child, like I was actually a child, but I was also a very traumatized child. I was afraid of the dark. I was peeing my pants and all these kind of things until I was 11. My mom left. I got into the puberty and I was on I was left to my own devices and I had my older sisters to look uh, to and my older my oldest sister had already been that traumatized that she kind of like went inward and mm, rejected anything sexual i guess and so i had like a good kind of like i had a i have I had an idea of what could happen or what i thought to myself back then was i don't want to be like i don't want to be a victim for my whole life i i know this has happened but i i, I just want to I don't want to be a victim. That was what I was telling myself. Um, a little bit further down, I was questioning my sexuality. But whenever I did, you know, I'm inter interested in girls. There was this thing about maybe it is because you have experienced this and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe being open minded and not settling on something and trying out and stuff like that. Maybe that's the, the better direction. And so what happened then was I ended up in a, in a relationship with uh, uh, someone when I was 13 until I was uh, nearly 20. Uh, very toxic, very, like very, very toxic. Uh, but my, I had no boundaries. I never learned any boundaries. I, um, I validated myself through performance of what I saw in what I had already saw then about that time in pornography and stuff like that. So what I figured out, I, I am able to perform, like I can do all of these things. And um, that must mean that I am probably healthy. Like if, if that's what everyone else is doing, you know, if people are watching porn, even young teenagers already, and this was start of the 2000s, I, I must be normal. So I, knowing that I didn't feel normal, I just looked out and I always tried to like just, I couldn't find anything wrong about it. So I just went along with it. Okay, that's what teenagers do, whatever. Anyway, I was in a long-term relationship my whole life, actually from 13 on really long, like nine years. And then the next one was like four years, always with 
men who only ever told me you are different than the other girls and hearing this I was like yeah I know I'm different but if you see me then maybe I'm okay and then whenever they turn sour and bad I, it felt like it's I need to prove that I'm not wrong anyway so this is how abuse works and I didn't never know well how it is like you know you 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 are in these relationships and you believe everything that they tell you and you whenever you doubt or whenever someone someone else doubts you will tell yourself like oh I couldn't have been that stupid that I got into into something with someone who's that fucking dumb you know so this this was um my story for most of my teenage time in my 20s and until and until I was 27 I hadn't experienced anything else but relationships performing being like walking on eggshells um cooking for like cooking for the man like be doing everything to try and keep this kind of like yeah keep this facade or whatever um any sex that I had was like more focused on like performance not how I actually felt I actually dissociated a lot of the times before I entered the sex trade now uh, what I have to tell say as well is that I obviously grew up in Germany so I grew up in Germany this is a very progressive country and like you know the sex trade here like I don't know like it's just, it's, it's normal okay this is how it was yeah this is how I grew up kind of like understanding it to be uh obviously I also know knew that it wasn't something normal to do like I knew that only certain people can do that um and I had lived I had lived uh nomadically from like 2014 like 13-14 um in Ireland and then the UK uh, I was like taking drugs for all of my life, like uh, smoking weed from when I was 13. And like when, uh, so the five years before I entered the sex trade, I was heavily, like I was literally just on, on drugs, really heavy drugs. And I have no recollections of it, really. Um, I lived in a couple of different cities and I don't have a clue. Um, I couldn't also, I, I was never able to hold on uh, down a job for longer than a year. Um, I was working corporate jobs, but wherever I was and what, whatever job, wherever, whichever surrounding, whichever groups of people, scene or whatever, I was always feeling like an imposter or really wrong. Just that's how I felt my whole life. Anyway, um, in Brighton, when I was just giving up the drugs, because I was indeed fighting my whole life to find the right crew, find meaning, find 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 something. Uh, I was sitting at the beach in Brighton. A very, you know, we we all know, or you probably don't, but Brighton is this progressive, queer, sex positive um town in the south of England that's where I was living actually living on a boat in the marina for I think a hundred pound 
a month. And um, I met an older man who was a photographer through someone from the rave scenes, through some drug contract. And he was a photographer. He was um, part-time working in college, teaching teenagers and uh, part-time editing and taking photo photography and photography for the porn industry in the UK. And I uh, met him alongside his little, hmm, his protege or as I now understand, one of the girls that he groomed as well. Um, and so he, yeah, he, he basically told me he's a photographer, this is how the industry works, um, it's a really lucrative thing. And then she chimed in and she's 21. And she told me, well, she's been doing this since she's 18. She by then already had a Mercedes, like she had a lot of money. And me, me, I didn't. Uh, and I had just stopped uh, corporate jobs and wanted to go back to my hippie ways. Actually, before that, I did permaculture, did lots of like self-sustainable things. And my dream was actually and still is to buy a piece of land and um, create my own garden and um, self-sufficient lifestyle. And when she told me how much money you can make, I was kind of, it was, it, it was done. Like it was literally done. She told me, uh, you know, it's 50 pound per hour to start off with. And, um, uh, and obviously she, she will have told me this because um, she, yeah, she, she was doing well. So when you're doing well, you obviously, if someone asks you or if you meet someone, you will not tell them the truth or something. You will be very proud of yourself because uh, even if you come, or especially if you come from like desolate or, or um, difficult upbringing, you will be like, well, this is me getting myself out of this. So this was her stance as well. And this is what, he, what she was telling me. She was telling me that I uh, am beautiful and sexy. And I never even thought of myself as that. As I said, the only compliments that I ever got was you are not like the other girls. And that's kind of like all I've ever gotten. Um, I was very alternative back then, I have to add. Um, like very alternative I have like tattoos everywhere and stuff like that um, and yeah she said there's a space for everyone in the sex trade and I can show you the ropes I have lots of contacts um, and yeah you, you'd be doing great in that at that so I started um, with her mentoring kind of thing I got into it it all sounds really amazing like um, because for someone yeah especially for someone who yeah never fitted in um she told me this whole like yeah we're all outcasts here and everyone's like you know getting their bag with their particular kind of like look and stuff so it's not as strict as it is as it was back in the mainstream times back in the 90s or whatever and i believed everything and then i got in modeling um, and webcaming. It was like end of 2017. I was 27. I was 27. Um, and I made a portfolio um, just for, for modeling and webcaming and uh, started off as well as a dominatrix um, because I told myself from the beginning, I, I couldn't do like, 
I, I couldn't do anything with people that I haven't met before um, or seen before. Um, that was my kind of like um, boundaries that I had at the beginning. Um, and as it is, when you have decided you are doing this step, I, I told the most important people, even my family, I told them this is what I'm doing now. At least I don't have a boss over me. That's what I told everyone and that I can decide when I get up and when I work and if I didn't want to go to a shoot, I could do webcamming and I'm like very flexible and all this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, so I very quickly understood that um, there is no uh, self, uh, th there is no way to make your path yourself. The clients, the men are making the path, the, the men are deciding which look you are and what you are based on this look. So what I understood was very quickly that um, girls with a lot of tattoos and piercings um, and, and stretched ears, which I had back then, they will be submissive. They are 100% submissive. There is no way um, of having uh, like a uh, like a like a normal quote unquote um, mainstream kind of looking porn the scenario it's always going to be like this uh and um yeah i i rejected lots of shoots i said no lots of times until there was a point where i was like well and where even models uh and this this woman as well will would be telling me like oh you know maybe you'll have to change a little bit maybe you have to like look at what you can do maybe look at fetish stuff or maybe look at this or that um but this is not how you you know you, you're gonna have to be flexible basically and uh that was when the first um that was when the first uh producers and also like high profile like as in like high twitter following uh follower profile contacted me uh some women but mainly men uh main uh, like nine like 98 men hey you're new on the scene do you want to shoot like um i'm very well known and i can make you big and all this kind of stuff and yes i fell for that i did that i did um i think like four i did like 10 shoots um with like men um and three of those were no, four of those were like mainstream pornography shoots um mainstream meaning that they are really big co companies and it's watched like a lot everywhere and what i wanted with that was like any like any other um porn person that talks about it um in a positive light they they also they always want to promote themselves like so that's what it's it's never about telling the truth it's always about promoting yourself or and if you are saying something you will never um like talk about the neg negatives um the the promise was the more mainstream i do the the more money i can ask for in sessions like so in real time meets with submissive men um and yeah like the more the higher profile you are the more you can ask for um your only fans and, and stuff like that uh and that's what 
that's what I did. So I did all of these things because that's what you do. And um, that's what professionalism is in this industry. During the time in my industry as a dominatrix, which I was uh, the whole time uh, through, uh, I had the same experience as every other dominatrix, which is um, men, like the main uh, clientele of men coming to you asking for feminization, forced feminization um, fetishes, which is, yeah, as we hopefully all know, also called sissification and it is the sexualized um yeah it's basically the sexualization of or fetishization of transvestism there is no other way of saying this this is not a fetish it's literally like an obsession or like a, a, a like a yeah it's, it's an obsession with humiliating and degrading your yourself into the feminine quote-unquote role because the feminine quote-unquote role is what they see in pornography and until they reach this point to end up wanting to be feminized they will have before that other inadequacy um, issues around how they look how they uh, how they perform in bed if they have a small penis and stuff like that. This will all feed into this whole thing of like, oh, I'm not, um, I'm not a real man. I I want to be humiliated for a not being a real man and then get turned into a uh, into a slut and a whore. And this is what they do. Um, and very importantly, what I wasn't aware of is that um, this whole trans nonsense was going on while I was in the industry and the industry is very clearly binary there is no nonsense with like third third genders whatever these sissies and also the transsexuals and all, all of these um, men with breath uh, with breasts they're all men and they get charged as men as in like if they work in porn they have the same rates or maybe a little bit higher than men but they will never be treated as women so when I was peak basically which is like I'm sorry 30 30 seconds just to wrap it up so four years I was dealing with these men and I got peaked by a man that after two years of paying me as a as a as a mistress he came out uh to me um via like Skype and told me uh I'm actually a woman and I uh I want to be addressed by this and that and what I knew from him before was that he was a, actually a child of a um of a trans housing by pro uh, sorry of a, a um, Munchausen by proxy mother, I already knew that um, uh, story. And when I asked him, "Are you gonna go to therapy?" he was like, "Nah, what? What's nah? I, I, I'm I'm just a trans woman now." There was no way of like actually questioning this whole thing. And this is when I realized that when you get into this, when you get into this, uh, um, into this industry the sex industry as well of the idea of trans as well of, uh, is, is the same strategy and the same um, move that makes you makes it really hard for you to move which is this cult-like um, abuse abusive relationship like um, thought of like if I have if I'm going down this road now I will never be able to turn back because what a fucking shame it is to be turning back and, and letting everyone know that I did a mistake.